Well, hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Nefesh Podcast. This is episode 42, and I'm so glad that you are listening. Now, this weekend, as I publish this episode, there's the whole coronation of King Charles II going on in England, and um, I remember, I wasn't alive back then, but I remember hearing that uh, Queen Elizabeth's coronation, Queen Elizabeth II, her coronation, I think, in the 1950s, uh, I want to say 1952, it was like the first public, uh, first televised like royal event, and you can go back and, and see footage of it. Um, and so now, 70 years later, to be doing a whole other coronation in one of uh, the world's longest living and still important, I say that, you know, because England still has a, a place, a stage, uh, a place on the world stage, uh, longest living monarchy is pretty, it's pretty incredible. And if you're into that stuff, uh, you may have gotten up early to watch it. I was content to just watch the, uh, to follow the pictures and the, the footage and see all the, you know, the fun and funny instances. You know, I was born in 1978 and that was the very tail end of what we would refer to as Gen X, Generation X. Um, the, the idea of these generations and that they, they are born within a certain time period reflects certain characteristics. Uh, started a few years back and um, it, we go as far back as looking at, for example, like the silent generation. They were considered to have been born during that World War I or, or have um, served or been alive during World War I. And then you move into um, the baby boomer generation, uh, which coincides with the baby boom of all of those who were born between 1945 and 1964, I think, um, when at that time, the uh, the population of the world increased to such an extent, or especially in the United States, um, it was the largest generation essentially born in those 19 years. And that's because yeah, right after World War II, you have to have people, have uh, men coming home from war and they're settling into, as was during President Eisenhower, you settle into this very kind of suburban lifestyle and you know the typical the tv shows like leave it to beaver and and i love lucy these were the shows that uh tended to personify that baby boomer time that eisenhower time of peace prosperity and a lot of kids and so you get the baby boomer generation and then after the baby boomer generation you get what is known as gen x generation x and they and reports differ uh it's not an exact science because essentially it was made up but it's anywhere from like 1964 or 1966 to about 1979 or, or even as far as late as 1981 is the gen x and after that you've got the millennials and then you've got gen z and then today i think you have gen alpha it it's it's gone past my understanding of even trying to keep up with that but the gen xers we were known for are known for uh, some cynicism we we came after the baby boomers and their wonderful time of of life and growing and thinking that everything was okay they grew up in a type of uh, a bit of peace and prosperity although you have the vietnam war and the Cold War in between that time. And so Gen Xers come after that into definitely into still ongoing prosperity. 
but they're they i think it's gen x that become like the first latchkey kids um those kids coming home from school and both parents are working so in the baby boomer generation you do have women going going to work um but typically you have one single income as as time goes on you then have both parents who are working and gen xers are in the time of the 80s which uh, is a height of prosperity and the Reagan era and, um, you know, money and, and all of that wealth. And, um, and that has continued since that time, but it's also really the last generation to, um, kind of be on the, the cusp of technology or on the border between, um, you know, the internet generation and, and the non-internet generation. So for example, my parents were not, they both were uh, baby boomers. Um, although my dad was actually, I think, technically part of the silent generation, but my mom was part of the baby is part of the baby boomer generation, and so their technology consisted of you know the first TVs that came out, um, or the first record players, or the first telephones that they were able to to use. My generation, um, we grew up with a landline in our house. You had the rotary phone that that spins. I used to like using that. But I also liked using our phone that you put on the wall, you know, and it's got the long cord because if you wanted to talk to your friends and you didn't want anybody else around. Uh, and we had a couple of phones in our house. Uh, there were, you know, at one point five teenagers growing up in our house at the same time um, at, at two different periods. But my older brothers and sisters, that was before I think they had like five telephones in the house. We had three or four, you know, there were five of us in that era where we had the telephone and the long cord. And so we'd stretch that long cord as long as it would possibly go into our, uh, into our, our bedroom so that we could talk. Although for me, it wasn't so much talking to friends, which I did do, but it was doing a lot of like quoting, uh, uh, because I was, in Bible quiz. And so we had to memorize scripture and then quote that scripture. And so, uh, it would be talking to my quiz coach on the phone and, uh, with that cord stretched all the way into my room, quoting scripture as he would be looking on in a book, uh, looking from the book while I quoted to make sure I was doing it accurately. Um, so we had the rotary phone. We had those, those, you know, push phones, uh, the ones that hung on the wall or the long cords, we were the generation that had the cassette tape, so I don't remember eight tracks. Uh, people prior to me would have maybe remembered eight tracks, but I had the cassette tapes. I briefly remember a period where we had a beta machine, and the beta was the precursor to the VHS. And so um, they uh, it was Blockbuster, and then it was Warehouse or the Warehouse that had you know things that. Uh, beta or VHS uh, tapes that you could go and rent movies and um, and so we briefly had a beta machine and but then we got a VHS player as soon as it came out and we would record our favorite TV shows and movies and of course we'd go and rent movies on that VHS and I remember when I was a young teenager we got our first ever CD and wow was that like that was a game changer. And so of course they were expensive and of course CD players were expensive and you know, not all cars came with CD players. And so um, you would take the CD and you would get a really nice CD to tape uh, recorder and you could record 
your your CDs onto cassette tapes because you you maybe had one CD player or one CD, but you had like a ton of cassette players all over, right? Or you had the Walkman. So we may have had CDs, but we had to record them onto cassette tapes because I had a Walkman still at that time. I don't know if I ever got a CD player that was like a... Um, that was like a Walkman. I don't know if I ever did. I may have, but it was much later. And by that time, you know, you have CD players in your car. And so that was my generation. And, um, and even those who were born anywhere in those late 1960s, or um, again, depending upon the, the time period, early 1960s. And um, I remember the first time I used the internet and the first time I had an email, it was when I went off to Bible college in 1995 and I had to send an email um, and uh, had to, I think, use like the internet library. So I, we had an actual library that I, of course, worked at, of course. And I worked at the library, I was a librarian, student librarian. But we had to be able to use the internet to get stuff or to um, access certain things or certain articles or something. But it was it was still on the very like fringe. And of course, people had been using the internet prior to that. But that was my first experience, and um, and then of course it just propelled from there. And I remember Y2K and everybody freaking out about the dates um, and the rollover to the year 2000 and how that all of our old systems had, um, had, you know, had the four digit 1900 or the use the two digit years. And, and so they were worried it would go back to 1900 when it rolled over into 2000. Um, all of that. And, and then of course, by that time, banking and other things had been monetized. And so there was legitimate concern, I think, on for some people, because everything had become so dependent upon the internet or computers everything had become dependent on technology even back then 23 years ago we were starting to realize our dependency uh, we are absolutely dependent upon technology today but back then it was still um you know there was that concern again with y2k i remember my first phone now i didn't have a cell phone i didn't have an analog phone but everybody everybody i knew had a phone and they had an analog phone and I was just getting out of just graduating from college and my first phone my first cell phone was an analog and and so I kind of was like hey I'm a I'm a step up above everybody else if it was digital it was on the Sprint network and was not a smartphone that was still in process but some people did have Blackberries back then but it was a you know it was a digital cell phone um, I, my brother-in-law and other people had pagers. I never really, I don't think I ever had a pager, but that was the age when you had pagers and doctors had pagers and you would get paged if, if they needed you. Um, and so that's how they got a hold of you. But I mean, you know, growing up, we used pay phones. We had to carry a quarter with us so that we could call our parents when we were ready, ready to be picked up from youth. And, and um, if we didn't have a quarter, we'd call collect, which always made my parents mad because <laughs> calling collect is a lot of money. And so, but there was a payphone at my church right before, right by the water fountain, and we had to use this payphone to to call our parents or or anybody that we needed. If we were there early and somebody else was coming later, we had to call them if we forgot something. I mean, it was it was payphones, it was landlines, and then analog phones, and then cell phones, and 
Uh, I remember when I was a kid, when my mom would drive to the bank. And you remember those old teller tube things where you would, it was like a drive-through. It was like an ATM, but it wasn't. You would put your cash or your checks that you wanted to deposit in these tube, cylinder tube things. And I think it was something like with a vacuum that would then, once you pushed it, it would, like a vacuum, suck it into the main the, the main building and the teller would get it right there. So you're talking to the teller over an intercom and you put this cylinder tube thing in this little, little machine, you'd push a button and they would get it and they would say, okay, hold on, we're getting your deposit. And they would pull it out and they would count the money. All right, this is so, all right, Mrs. Leonard, this is the deposit. Yep. That's the deposit. All right. And then my favorite part is that the teller would put uh, would put suckers, candy suckers in the cylinder tube and send it back to us. So if, if there were kids in the car, they would put these little, you know, cheap candy suckers in the tube, send it back to us. And my mom would get her deposit slip and we would get candy suckers. We always liked going to the bank because we would get those candy suckers in the tube as she would send it back to us. It was like, again, it was the precursor to the ATM. And I mean, I, I don't know if I ever used it myself. I think by that time, by the time I had a checking account, I think they were gone or being replaced. But I remember as a kid, my mom using those. You know, you think today about how technology has just expanded and the younger generation, they obviously don't remember that they grew up with cell phones and iPads and the internet and streaming TV and YouTube. Um, I remember when YouTube, I was first introduced to it. I was a youth pastor. It was the early 2000s and um, I didn't know anything about it, but somebody was showing me how somebody created, you know, they put those little Mentos uh, candies into a two liter of soda. And if you do that, it causes the fizz to like shoot out. And so they were doing all these cool things and, showing me it from YouTube. But the younger generation, they grew up on that. Um, those of us Gen Xers are older. We remember all, all of the ways that technology has changed and it's been significant. Well, today, uh, especially most recently, um, there has been something that has come out called chat GPT. And if you haven't heard about it, not familiar with it, um, it's been really big in education as educators all over the world are starting to freak out because essentially it's an artificial intelligence that will, if you ask, you put in a prompt, the prompt will be, give me, um, write, or let's see, give me, give me a one page paper on why world war one started or how world war one started. It will give you a one page paper on how world war one started. It is an artificial form of artificial intelligence that I don't really understand because I'm not technologically savvy, but that they have created, they have come up with that can respond to prompts. So like, you know, if you uh, today on, on customer service websites or websites that have, uh, or, or companies that have websites with customer service, you'll have that chat or that chat bot. You can type in a question and it will, it will discern what your question is and give you an answer. You may have already experienced that. Well, this is that like times 10 and you can ask it a question. And we did this, um, a few weeks ago, some colleagues and I, 
I haven't done it. I haven't actually gone onto the website. I am, I am resisting it. I am in a form of, of silent protest uh, or not so silent. But I have not used it yet. I don't know if I will use it. But he went on and he, he asked it to create a quiz based upon a certain chapter of a certain book. Give me multiple choice questions from this chapter, from this book. And it did it. I mean, you, there needed to be like just a few corrections. Somebody else uh, ran like a sermon through the, the chat GPT and said, critique the sermon. And it did. And it gave feedback on what the sermon did well and what the sermon didn't do well. And I, I know that this has been probably out there and some of you may have already been well aware of it for a while, for a while but it has really come to us, particularly in educational uh, institutions, because it is going to transform education, just like computers and internet, the internet transformed education. This will transform education again. I, I have been edu in education for my entire adult life, either as a student or as a professor or as a college administrator and so the for the past um, 28 years I have seen how education has grown and changed and um, and particularly with the use of the internet it, it became more and more clear that professors who prior to the internet were really the sources of all knowledge your professor or your pastor or your parents I still consider my mom to be like the source of, of knowledge. Like if I have a question that, you know, normally I would look up in an encyclopedia, I'll ask my mom. And, and especially growing up, that was, she was just, my mom is just well-read and, and has lived and knows a lot and is very smart. And so um, I, I could ask her something and she would, you know, she would know the answer to it. My, one of, a couple of my brothers-in-law actually are, are, uh, similar to that, where I can ask them a question and and they'll know the answer. Like I consider them the source of, of knowledge in a lot of areas, and so I can go to them. Uh, but prior to the internet, your teacher, your professor, was the source of knowledge. And so you came into the classroom expecting to receive, like download all of this knowledge. And that was my experience, uh, especially in my undergraduate years. From 95 to 99, I was getting my undergraduate degree, and I loved it. I loved sitting there taking notes in, you know, I didn't use a computer. I took notes by writing it out, and I learned so much, and I just learned, and I wrote, and I heard, and I wrote, and I, uh, I remember so much of it today, and maybe that's because I'm that type of a, a learner, but, um, and also because I, I like to learn. But they had all the information. And if they didn't, then the textbook did. And if the textbook didn't, then you can go to the library to see other books. Well, as the internet began to be saturated, a source of information, which was what the, um, you know, Al Gore was famous for, for promoting, you know, imagine this, this thing that can go around the world. And anywhere you are in the world, you can type something in and ask it a question and get information. Suddenly, educational institutions had to change their teaching methodology. Now, today, still professors are, are, for the most part, seen as 
as still kind of the uh, purveyors or the source of information, but not nearly the way they were before. It reminds me in history of the, the church in the 1500s in the medieval period, right before the Protestant Reformation. The church was the source of all theology, uh, theological knowledge, biblical knowledge, because it, um, the, the Bible was, was at that time still only translated into Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. And only the priests or those in uh, higher offices at the church or, or universities, they were the only ones who could read Latin, Hebrew, or Greek. No one had developed yet the Bible, translated it into the common vernacular. And so they were the source of all knowledge. And if you wanted to know something about Bible or theology, you had to go to the, the priest and you had to trust that that was a good priest and who wanted to help you and would give, you know, give you the time of day. But the, you know, I would say 99, 95 to 99% of the rest of the world couldn't read and or couldn't read Latin, Hebrew, or Greek, did not have a Bible in their own language and did not understand the theology of the church or of the Bible. Well, obviously that changed in the Protestant Reformation and and this is a way in which technology was huge and super important. The printing press during the time of the Protestant Reformation drastically changed and propelled the Protestant Reformation. There are historians who suggest that the Protestant Reformation would not have had the effect that it did if they had not been able to mass produce the Bible in other languages. And so as, as people begin to read it in their own language, they begin to understand it and they begin to question the teachings of the church, uh, which is what Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin and uh, John Wycliffe, they were, be they were beginning to do. And so they were challenging um, these teachings and, and the printing press allowed the mass production of it. Talk about technology changing society and especially in that time, changing society for the good. Well, similarly, for the last 400 years prior to the 20th century and really the 21st century, knowledge was still in the hands of the elite, of the educated. But now knowledge is in your hands, in my hands. And I don't consider myself the most educated or the most scholarly or the most academic. I mean, it's in all of our hands. It's in my niece's hands. It's in my nephew's hands. It's in... Uh, as they were growing up and I, they would ask me a question and I would say, you know what? I really don't know. I think they were asking me a question to see if I knew the answer because they already knew the answer. I don't know where they were getting their information from these television shows that were becoming way too smart or the internet, but they were telling me stuff that I didn't know. It is in all of our hands. We have access to information at our fingertips. Unless you have given up smartphones and you have tried to return to the analog system, you have a smartphone and you have access to the internet. You have access to information and access to knowledge. Well, this chat GPT is now a new source of, it is a new paradigm shift for educators. And though I am not having, having, not necessarily grown up in the current technological age, but grown up with, to a certain extent, some technology. 
I'm not against technology. I think I need to say that several times in this podcast. I'm certainly not against it. I'm speaking into a microphone, into a computer with my light turned on um, and then able to upload it to the internet so that you can hear this podcast. Obviously, I'm not against technology. I'm grateful for the air purifier that I can hear to my right because I have just serious allergies and sinuses and especially with all the the rain in California that has caused all the blooming and the pollen it's it's been a nightmare uh, for me recently I'm grateful for that technology has been a game changer in every area both for good and for bad of course the printing press allowed the Protestant Reformation and beyond that, it allowed the Bible to be given and provided to every person in their own language. No more hand copying texts of the Bible. Now you could just make copies of it. Amazing. I think of my youngest niece, niece Ruth, who was born with spina bifida. And right away after she was born, they had to take her into surgery and sew up the part of her back that didn't fully heal in the womb, and they had to put a shunt in her head. I mean, this is a, a, a newborn. And, and then a year later had to have that shunt replaced because it wasn't working very well. My niece, who will be 11 here soon, she would not be alive today if she were born 100 years ago, maybe even 50 years ago, maybe 40 or 30. She's alive because of modern technology and the advances in technology. Cancer today is being managed unlike it had been ever before. I mean, cancer, which has been and is still is a monstrous, monstrous enemy, is they are, they are coming out with so many more uh, revelatory ways of, of revolutionary ways of managing it. And, and, uh, people are living longer as a result. And cancer is no longer the, the death sentence that it was before. And the, the treatments for it, I wouldn't have wanted cancer. I, I don't want cancer ever, but to imagine to get cancer 50, 60, 70 years ago, Things that were killing us a hundred years ago are not anymore. Even AIDS, which was a terrible, is a terrible disease, is, is becoming manageable today. I mean, medically, the advances we have made, the ability to communicate with people all over the world, the pandemic that we recently went through, and again, taking all the political stuff out, the ability to connect with people over Zoom or, or uh, another uh, broadcasting connection, the ability to connect with loved ones and family members and FaceTime through FaceTime and all of those things over the pandemic helped to keep the world from becoming isolated. We have, we have a lot to be grateful for, and I, I believe that the technological advances that we have created over the years are part of the truly beautiful mind that our Creator God has given us. 
this is just one of the reasons why I just can't believe in a, why I couldn't be an atheist. There's just no way. My mind is, and I don't even have the best mind, but my mind is way too incredible for it to have just happened by chance, which means there has to be somebody even more incredible and amazing who created this mind. Humans, humans have created technology that has allowed us to do so much, but it has also allowed us to do truly awful things and unspeakable acts of horror. When we split the atom, that led to the development of the nuclear weapon, that led to the development of nuclear bombs that were dropped in Japan in 1945 that wiped out millions of people. In World War I, though there was a certain assassination um, that of somebody's ne nephew that was the catalyst that really wasn't the, the cause of World War I. World War I was building and building for, for decades as these European countries were essentially gathering power and trying to carve up Europe. It was the time of the Industrial Revolution, the late 1800s after, after we had developed so much in society, the train, the um, new advances in, in ships and other technology, there started to be an emphasis upon warfare and developing weapons and weapons that were unlike anything that we had seen before. The early, the early instances of the tank were used in World War I. Not very well, but they were used. The creation of gases that could kill instantly horrific deaths, like the mustard gas, was created. The weapons that were used, World War I is, is really deemed to be the bloodiest and most gruesome war and it's due to the weapons that we had created and we're now using on each other it was a way for europe to flex its muscle to show who was going to be top dog in europe it wasn't just germany it wasn't just serbia it wasn't just it wasn't the nothing is the single uh, nothing is the cause of a single event it always has the baggage and the past stuff that's leading up to it but that was certainly true for world war one and each country was amassing these weapons and building these weapons, and they wanted to essentially try them out. Which country will be the victor now that we have all these weapons and the ability to truly conquer each other? And then World War I, unfortunately, led to World War II. Had World War I not have happened, Hitler probably would not have been able to come to power the way he did. Now, the anti-Semitism that had been around since the time of Christ, unfortunately, as, as Christians were, unfortunately, the instigators of that anti-Semitism, not during Jesus' time, but after. For 2,000 years, anti-Semitism has been building, and and building to a point where somebody named Hitler could use it as a scapegoat and as a source for all the problems from Germany. But World War I 
was what led into World War II. And had World War I not happened, World War II probably would not have either. World War II, and again, the, the, the uh, shifting powers that were taking place all over and the changes in society really led to the Cold War, this battle between Russia or the Soviet Union and the United States. The Cold War and the attempt to stop communism caused the building up of armaments. Both Soviet Union and the United States began to build up machines and weapons and create new weapons and create new ways. And they were both prepared to go to war with each other. The Cold War led to the, Viet or the Korean War. And the Cold War then led to the Vietnam War. Today we are, we are now at a, at a place where, and, and I think we particularly saw this in the pandemic, that though Zoom, um, any other uh, type, of, type of technology that uh, Microsoft Teams, um, FaceTime, all of these other things, though they enabled us to connect with each other virtually so that we could still hear each other's voices and see each other's faces. What we have discovered both during and after the pandemic is that the lack of personal one-to-one -one human contact had a significant effect on the mental health of people, children, children who had to stay home from school and were not able to socialize with their friends and not get that teaching that they were used to. It disrupted the education system. They say that our, uh, all of those kids who are going to school in the pandemic, that they are now behind a couple of years. And it can't be because they didn't have access to the same knowledge. Again, remember, this is the time of the internet. If I want knowledge, I can get knowledge. If I want knowledge on how to do a math equation, I can get it from the internet. So it's not like, well, and, and actually it does speak to, and there, I don't have the statistics on this, but it does speak to the, the income gap and the reality that kids in more rural and uh, poor areas did not have access to the internet, which means they were going to struggle to get information and to be in class because they didn't have the same systems that suburban middle um, middle income uh, earners had those kids had and so that is part of it that there was a whole generation or a whole crop of students and kids who did not have access to that technology because of their income level we tend to think that everybody has the internet today and that's actually that's a really bad assumption because people today still do not and they don't have the same resources that the rest of the world does. It's growing, it's getting better in that area, but it's not fully there. But the other reason I think that kids got left behind, um, and there are again many factors, they didn't have parents who were able to stay home and actually help and make sure that they got their work done. It was also the social interaction that they were missing. The connection with others, the bondedness that you get from from the way they were used to. And I'm not advocating for public versus private school or homeschool versus going to school. That's not at all what I'm saying. Uh, the, 
the essence of it is that the personal connection and the way they had been learning in community was disrupted. And so as we face a whole other paradigm shift, and not just for education, but for all of life, AI will certainly help. And anything that it can do with medical advances, I am all for. I am all for that. But the downside, the negative part of what it, the potential that it has to do is to cause our, our students, our educational system, our students to become merely downloaders of information on a, on a larger scale, even before they, they, uh, they got the, or even during the internet, but prior to AI, it will encourage not just students, but all of society to outsource learning and doing to computers. Disney came out with a movie called WALL-E 15 years ago, it was 2008. And it was, you know, this futuristic tale of what would happen if uh, humans had become so consumer consumeristic and had, had really outsourced all of their tasks and developed technology to the point where robots cater to them and cater to their every whim. And so you see these humans they are, they move around, they sit on these like robot machines. They don't even walk anymore because they don't have to. They can just stroll around and um, their, it depicts their, their muscles having atrophied to the point where they can't even walk. Robots are doing everything for them, feeding them, moving them around, bathing them. Now, obviously that's an extreme but one of the things that I have seen, especially in, in, in teaching courses about Bible study or teaching courses on, on homiletics or preaching, the, the danger is to, is to find quick solutions or quick answers rather than doing the work ourselves. For example, one of the, one of the steps of what's known as the inductive Bible study method and I'm just so eternally grateful for my late, one of the, my late professors, Dr. John Hartley, who passed away a few years ago, amazing biblical scholar, took his class in my, in seminary. And it, it reinforced what I had been doing and learned even in Bible quiz, but it really revamped the way I preached. And I began to teach this method to, to teenagers, to everybody I could because it forced, it forces the person to actually just read scripture. So the first step, step of the inductive Bible study method is what is known as observations. And so you just read scripture over and over and over again. So you take a passage of scripture that you want to teach on or create a lesson on or preach from. Let's say it's Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 to 26, the fruit of the spirit. Well, prior to you actually um, first of all, you start with scripture rather than start, starting with a good idea or a commentary. And you do observations of the book of Galatians. You read the book of Galatians once or, once or twice all the way through in one sitting. You don't take a break. And you just write down your observations. You don't write down conclusions. You don't write down interpretations. You don't make assumptions. You just know what you're, what you're reading. 
Then you break it down even further. Then you read chapter five of Galatians and you read it over several times. You write down your observations. Then you take verses 16 to 26 and that's where you read it over and over again, maybe three, four, five times. And you write down your observations. That becomes the foundation for your sermon. That is essentially 50% of sermon lesson biblical study development. You reading scripture for what it says, not bringing in interpretation, conclusion, assumptions. From there, you build your sermon. From there, you find themes. From there, you try to understand the original message and what it can, how it can apply today. From there, you use other tools like Bible dictionaries, um, book introductions, and you begin to develop the sermon message out of that. Well, we have amazing tools today like a concordance. A concordance, you can go on the internet and you don't even need a book anymore. You can go on the internet and you could search for how many times the word fruit is used in the book of Galatians. And it will tell you, and it will tell you within a matter of seconds. If you were doing observations on your own of Galatians, and you kept reading and reading and reading, it would take you several hours to finally find how many times that word fruit is used there. Believe is another example. Believe, the word belief, believe, um, is a, a significant theme in the book of John. Why do we know it's a significant theme? Because it's used, I can't remember the, the, the number. I want to say it's close to a hundred times in the book. Anytime a word is used that often in any book of the Bible, it's telling you that there's, it, it's a theme there. Well, I could go to a concordance and, and just type that in, which I've done. Or I could read the book of John for myself. And as, and in a way of self-discovery, I can not only discover how many times it's there, but I can discover so much more. Not just that, but about what the book of John is telling me. Now, this doesn't apply to all situations. So for example, <laughs> you don't need to get lost trying to find your way to a location because you refuse to use GPS and you want to discover how to arrive at the destination by yourself. We ain't got time for that, right? Nobody got time for that. So there are things where you don't really need to try to discover or learn something on your own just to do it. Unless you have all the time in the world, you want to do that. But when we're talking about important things like scripture, why would we want to shortcut the process? Scripture is transformative. It is the living word of God. That is not something that we want to take a shortcut in. Education and learning is important. Not all education is good. Not all forms of education is good. Not all forms of education encourage learning. But the moment we outsource our learning process and the process of discovery to technology, we are headed in a direction where we are going to become, um, I don't want to use the word stupid, but I'll do it just for the sake of, of not 
finding a better word, we're going to become much more dim. Let's put it that way. The more we outsource our learning to technology, the more dim we will become. Now, there is something to be said for, um, you know, the learning how to do AI, artificial intelligence and things like that will actually encourage more jobs and more learning and more education. And I get that and I understand that and I think that's, that's true. There are always two sides uh, of, of, of the coin, so to speak. There is always the positive that we can bring out of it. Well, not always, but there are, well, yeah, I guess in certain sense, in, in general. But there's also the negative. And navigating our way through this new era of technology, one of the things that, that has been resonating with me more and more has been the reality that the bigger we get, the more advanced we become, the, the larger, the more access we have to things, the smaller we actually have to become. The more people I have access to, the more personal I need to be in those one-on-one -on -one interactions. The more technology grips our society, the more personal and individual we need to become. You and I are humans made in the image of a personal, intimate God. You and I were built to learn and discover and grow, make mistakes and learn and grow. You and I were born to be in relationship, to be in connection, to experience physical touch and hugs, to look each other in the eye, to be present with one another. And when we lose those things that make us human, we will see an increase in all of these things we are currently seeing, a disconnect a serious disconnect from humanity, from emotions. Mental health issues are rising significantly. The amount of violence and gun violence, and not just gun violence, but violent uh, things that we're seeing lately all over the news, that will increase the more we remove humanity from itself. Technology can only do so much. The bigger we get, the more advanced we get, the more we need human contact, human interaction, human connection, individual connections. The more we need to challenge ourselves to learn and grow and utilize the skill of discovery for ourselves. We cannot outsource growth. We cannot outsource intimate relationships and the human touch and connection. We cannot outsource spiritual growth and spiritual formation. You and I must fight for that human connection and human contact. We have to fight for it. All the good that AI might do, you and I need to fight for what matters. 
the individual relationship, the individual connections, growth, the, the human factor that God has created within us. As we continue, I will be sharing more um, where, where I feel like my ministry and my focus will be heading, and I'm excited, I'm excited to invite you into that. Um, as always, I have much, many more soul stories with people to come, and, and I hope to bring in Dr. Enoch Charles to dialogue about this. He is a, a brilliant mind, and we've had dialogues and discussions about uh, AI and technology, and so I'm going to bring him in to talk about it um, and to, he'll provide the, try to provide the, the pros for it as I will try to, you know, discuss the cons, but a lot more to come. And so uh, thanks for listening and I will talk to you next time.